It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 257 for August 28, 2011. Recorded on August 25th. Maybe you're wondering, do Windows 7 discs become fragmented? A listener in Australia wondered that, asked about disk fragmentation and the need for a disk defragmenter for Windows 7 machines. Some people say there is no longer a need to run a disk defragmenter. Others say that Windows 7 disks become fragmented just as they did under earlier versions of Windows. As it turns out, guess what? Both of those points of view are correct. And I stated the positions very carefully. There is no longer a need to run a separate disk defragmenter. That's true because Windows includes its own disk defragmenter. It's also true because disk drives are now so large that fragmentation doesn't occur as quickly or as frequently as it did in the past. Point two, disks still become fragmented. That's also true. Because of the way files are written to disk drives, fragmentation is inevitable. To run the Windows 7 defragmenter, you simply click the Start menu and type Defrag. You'll see two options, one Disk Defragmenter, the other Defrag. Disk Defragmenter is the one you want. It has a graphical user interface so you can see what's happening. Defrag is a command line executable. If you use the shell that's provided by command.exe or PowerShell, you might want to use this, but probably not. A fragmented disk is a slow disk. If the read-write heads need to move many times in the process of fetching data, the process will be slower than if the process could read an entire file at once. Microsoft's Steven Sinofsky has written about disk defragmentation, and in this week's program I'm using some of his information. On the TechBiter Worldwide website, you'll find a link to Sinofsky's full article. There's a chart on the TechBiter Worldwide website. It's from Stephen Sinofsky. As processors have become faster and faster, disk data transfer speeds have increased not very much. That's why defragmentation is important. Sinofsky says, and I quote, Within the storage and memory hierarchy comprising the hardware pipeline between the hard disk and the CPU, hard disks are relatively slower and have relatively higher latency. Read-write times from and to a hard disk are measured in milliseconds, typically 2 to 5 milliseconds. Now, that sounds quite fast until you compare it to a 2 gigahertz CPU that can compute data in less than 10 nanoseconds on average, once the data is in the L1 memory cache of the processor. I do need to make one thing really clear here. Defragmenting a disk won't turn a slow computer into a fast computer. It's not magic. 
but anything that can be done reasonably to improve performance probably should be done. Disk defragmentation can be done reasonably. In fact, Microsoft turns it on by default, and the technology is licensed from the Disk Keeper Corporation. That's the company known for having the best defragmentation product available. You'll see an image on the TechBiter Worldwide website that shows you what you see when you start the Windows Disk Defragmenter. You'll note that it lists all the drives on the system. In this case, all of the drives have 0% fragmentation because the disk defragmenter ran recently. And by default, the defragmenter runs once a week in the middle of the night. Your computer might not be on then, so you might want to consider scheduling the process to run at a time when the computer is on but you don't expect to be using it. The process is easy. Just select the scheduling option, which will open the first of two dialog boxes. If for some reason you want to omit some of the drives, you can deselect them on the second configuration dialog. I can't think of any good reason to do this. Those who have solid-state disk drives, SSDs, probably won't want those drives to be defragmented, but that's okay. Microsoft automatically disables defragmentation on SSDs. They do that because defragmentation is not needed, and it actually could decrease the overall media lifetime because of the limited number of read-write cycles that these devices are rated for. Sanofsky points out that the built-in defragmenter has improved considerably over the past decade, I quote him again, In Windows XP, defragmentation had to be a user-initiated activity, that is, manual. It could not be scheduled. Windows Vista added the capability to schedule defragmentation. However, only one volume could be defragmented at any given time. Windows 7 removes that restriction. Multiple volumes can be defragmented in parallel, with no more waiting for one volume to finish until you start the process on another. So, if you are a Windows user, check to be sure that the defragmenter is set up to examine all drives on your computer and that it's scheduled to run at a reasonable time. How about Linux and Apple? Ask a Linux user about disk defragmenters and you'll probably be told something like, Oh! We don't need those because Linux disks never become fragmented. That's untrue. Because of the way the file system used by Linux stores files, fragmentation occurs much more slowly. But it does occur. And Linux users can use E2 defrag to clean up EXT2 disks. Drives that use EXT3 or EXT4 fragment so slowly that you may never need to use a defragmenter application. So maybe, ah, oh, we don't need those because Linux disks never become fragmented isn't really too far from the truth. The file systems used by Microsoft, that would be FAT, FAT16, FAT32, and NTFS. Now, FAT really doesn't mean they're big. FAT is File Allocation Table. 
All of the drives using those standards tend to place files sequentially on a disk drive. File systems used by Unix and Linux intentionally scatter files all over the disk, and that leaves a lot of space between the files on the drive. Apple's OS X is based on BSD Unix, and an internal reallocator process actively attempts to reduce or eliminate fragmentation. So, practically speaking, although some fragmentation does occur on Unix and Linux file systems, you probably won't need a disk defragmenter. It is not news that Steve Jobs of Apple has not been well for several years. This week, on Wednesday, he resigned as CEO. I quote, I have always said that if there ever came a day when I could no longer meet my duties and expectations as Apple's CEO, I would be the first to let you know. Unfortunately, that day has come. End quote. Regardless of what anyone thinks about Jobs, there is no question that he has been a visionary in the computer industry. Continuing the letter from Steve Jobs to the Board of Directors, I hereby resign as CEO of Apple. I would like to serve if the board sees fit as chairman of the board, director, and Apple employee. As far as my successor goes, I strongly recommend that we execute our succession plan and name Tim Cook as CEO of Apple. I believe Apple's brightest and most innovative days are ahead of it, and I look forward to watching and contributing to its success in a new role. I've made some of the best friends of my life at Apple, and I thank you all for the many years of being able to work alongside you. Steve. That was the message from Steve Jobs to the Apple Board of Directors. Apple's board immediately named Tim Cook, who was previously Apple's chief operating officer as the company's new CEO, Jobs has been elected chairman of the board, and Cook will join the board effective immediately. Art Levinson, who is the chairman of Genentech on behalf of Apple's board, said, and I quote, Steve's extraordinary vision and leadership saved Apple and guided it to its position as the world's most innovative and valuable technology company, end quote. Regarding Cook, Levinson said that his 13 years of service to Apple have been marked by outstanding performance, and he noted that Cook has demonstrated remarkable talent and sound judgment in everything he does. As COO, Cook was previously responsible for all of the company's worldwide sales and operations, including end-to-end -end management of Apple's supply chain, sales activities, and service and support in all markets and countries. It's a big announcement. It's a big change. It's not a big surprise. Facebook is adjusting its privacy settings again. It's been a few months since Facebook made any massive changes, but now they're doing it again. Possibly the thought is that if they change the privacy settings enough times, they'll eventually get it right. Or maybe the goal is to keep changing things until users are so hopelessly confused that they just stop worrying about it. 
Or maybe they're just a little bit worried themselves about Google+. Here's a little backstory. Anybody who posts anything on a web-based forum and expects it to remain private forever has never been taught the art of critical thinking. There's an old saying that goes something like this. Two people can keep a secret if one of them is dead. So expectations of privacy are illogical to begin with. One extremely welcome change, though, is the one that will allow users to edit or delete posts. It's easy to post a typo or a bad link, and a way to rectify that should have been built in years ago. It could also go a long way toward avoiding the embarrassment of late-night drunk posting. But keep in mind that someone may have captured and saved anything you've posted, even if you edit it, even if you delete it. If a Facebook user tags you, meaning they identify you by name on a photo, and you don't want to be tagged, you'll now be able to remove the tag. Anyone who has your picture can still post it, and they can still post a comment that reveals your name, but, ah, well, at least the tag will be gone. Facebook VT of product Chris Cox says that users will have more control regarding what appears on their pages. Oh, Chris, if you would only allow me to remove all those misleading, offensive, boring, and repetitive ads that appear along the right side of my page. But I suppose that's asking too much. Cox also says that Facebook's explanation of who can see what you post will be displayed graphically now instead of in just words. Words are apparently so outdated. Where words remain, they will be modified. Instead of saying everyone can see something you've posted, the post will now be shown as public. Oh, yes, public is so much clearer than everyone, isn't it? The changes started to show up on Thursday for some of Facebook's 750 million users. Google Plus allows users to place their friends in specific circles. Friends, family, co-workers, and circles you create. The new Facebook doesn't exactly add this feature because it's been there for quite a while. But Facebook will attempt to make it more usable. A question from a listener in California wonders which device is the right one. My stepdaughter had a Kindle, and when we went to an old hotel on the Florida coast last year and she was able to do internet and downloads from our room, while well, we had to take our laptops to the lobby to do anything. And the long battery life got my attention. I have a netbook. It doesn't have 3G, but readers don't have keyboards. Now there's 4G, which means what? Do readers have print options, or are all the features that I want building up to an iPad or something more expensive? What do you own? Wow, what a multi-part question. Well, the ability to communicate without Wi-Fi is the 3G feature, and the Kindle, in particular, has extremely long battery life because the screen consumes power only when the display changes from one page to another. The rest of the time, no power is consumed. 
on PCs or anything with a color screen, a screen backlight is on all the time. PCs also have other power consumers inside, more powerful CPUs, a mechanical disk drive, and so on. The trade-off for battery life is cost and weight. If you're willing to pay more and carry an 8-pound computer instead of a 1-pound computer, then you will have great battery life. You may have sore arms, but the battery will be perfect. Now, regarding keyboards and such, the readers are what they claim to be. Readers. The Apple iPad has a virtual keypad built in and full cellular connectivity, but for nearly $1,000, and regardless of what low prices Apple throws out for the really low-end iPads, if you really want all the features, you're going to pay close to $1,000. Okay, so for $1,000 versus maybe 100 to 150 for most readers, yeah, you're going to expect some big differences. Some of the tablet computers might bridge that gap, but a netbook computer does more than any of the Android-based tablets, doesn't weigh a lot more, and it can be folded closed to protect the screen. So what's 4G? Well, 4G is fourth generation. That's the easy part of the answer. As for what it means, <laughs> that's anybody's guess. In the old days, when organizations such as the Federal Communications Commission, the old FCC, established standards, everybody who called something a pickle had to actually sell you something that was defined by the standards as a pickle. 4G can mean whatever the company selling the device and providing the network service wants it to mean. The cell phone industry's lobbyists essentially have made it possible for the companies to regulate themselves. And if they would like to call a watermelon seed a pickle, then they can, even a kosher pickle. It's nonsense like this that's one of the primary reasons that I continue to use a 10-year-old cell phone on a pay-as-you-go plan. I'm no longer traveling enough to need a cell phone to provide 24-7 connectivity and the ability to be on the web wherever I am. So, all I use the phone for is the occasional, oh, phone call. Yeah, remember those? Phone calls. So, $25 every three to four months is a lot more palatable to me than a $100 or more per month cell phone bill. And that is doubly true now that AT&T is preparing to take over T-Mobile. I really don't want to be an AT&T customer. The readers don't have a print option, but the Kindle does have a keyboard for taking notes. And you can tweet quotations, or I think post them to Facebook. That is such an underwhelming feature that I've never even tried it. If you want email, true web access, and all the rest, then you need an iPad. Or maybe you just need to use your existing netbook. You can probably buy a USB device that will add cellular capabilities to the netbook. Check your cell phone provider for information about what's available and what data plans you could add. As for what I use, the primary computer is a desktop, of course. I have a more or less full-size Toshiba laptop that's powerful enough to run InDesign, Photoshop, and programs like that. 
That's the machine I would typically take with me on a trip. But I also have an Asus netbook at the office where network restrictions are such that I can't easily check personal email via the wired network. But the company has Wi-Fi access that I can use with a netbook. I also have a Kindle and the Kindle Reader application on all my computers. The Kindle's sharp screen and extremely long battery life are what attracted me to it. One big disadvantage is that the Kindle doesn't work with library books unless you're willing to break the book's digital rights management encryption. Amazon is supposed to be preparing a way for Kindle owners to add library books, but I don't know if that will be available for users of existing units or whether they'll expect us to buy a new one. The Nook, on the other hand, can be used with library books. My Kindle has 3G, but if I were to buy it now, I would skip the 3G and save a few bucks. The only thing 3G is good for is loading the occasional web page, and I don't do that very much. Downloading books from Amazon? <laughs> that has to be done via the Wi-Fi connection. That was something I missed when I was doing my initial research. <laughs> In short circuits, Zara turns 30, but you get the presents. Zara is an admirable and scrappy company that makes some astonishingly great software. The company is now 30 years old, and to mark that event, the company is offering some gifts to those who purchase its products in the next month or so. In 1981, Computer Concepts was formed. That company eventually became Zara. Today, the company is known for its graphics applications, but back then it was WordWise, a word processor application sold in England. It ran on the Acorn BBC Micro. Zara claims more than two and a half million customers today for its current applications. Purchasers of Zara Designer Pro will receive three photos a day for seven days from Fotolia. This could be worth up to $200. And you get your pick from Fotolia's collection of more than 12 million images. Those who buy Zara 3D Maker will receive extra typefaces. Zara is also offering upgrade deals on Magic's music and video titles that the company now sells. Zara founder Charles Moore notes the huge changes that have occurred over the past 30 years. In the 1980s, he says, leading-edge computers had 16 kilobytes of memory and it was impossible to imagine desktop computers with 10,000 times more RAM and processors running a 1,000 times faster. You'll find some links on the TechBiter Worldwide website. One is to the offers this month from Zara, and the other is to the company's history. Google finally has been caught red-handed. And the company will pay $500 million to the federal government in what is a tacit admission that it knowingly accepted illegal ads for fraudulent Canadian pharmacies. Those pharmacies were often located in China or Eastern Europe. As far as I'm concerned, it's about time. When a casual user such as me can spot these ads with ease, it's beyond belief that nobody at Google would notice. The feds have been investigating since May. 
and they found undeniable evidence that Google knew that some of the Canadian pharmacies that paid to place ads on Google did not require a prescription for drugs such as OxyContin or Ritalin. This week, Google said that it had banned advertising of prescription drugs in the United States by Canadian pharmacies some time ago. In a mea culpa attempt, Google said that, and I quote, it's obvious with hindsight that we shouldn't have allowed these ads on Google in the first place. Yeah, you got that right, Google. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.